Welcome to Meltdown to Mastery, the podcast that takes you on a transformative journey from despair to triumph. I'm your host, Jane Marquiendi, and today we have a truly inspiring guest with us. In this episode, we have the privilege of interviewing Justin Caffrey, a remarkable individual who experienced a profound transformation after enduring an unimaginable loss. Justin was a successful businessman where he navigated the complex landscapes of finance and investments. However, fate had a different path in store for him, one that would challenge him to the core. Tragedy struck when Justin faced the heartbreaking loss of his beloved son. This devastating event shattered his world, leaving him to grapple with grief and question his purpose in life. Justin joins us to share his remarkable story of resiliency and growth. He will take us through his personal meltdown, the depths of despair he endured, and the pivotal moments that led him on a path toward mastery. Justin's journey is a testament to the power of the human spirit and the capacity for personal transformation, even in the face of the most profound challenges. Throughout this conversation, we'll delve into the lessons Justin learned along the way, the tools and strategies he utilized to navigate his darkest moments and the profound insights he gained. His story is a beacon of hope for anyone, reminding us that within the depths of pain lies the potential for profound growth and personal mastery. Welcome to Meltdown to Mastery, empowering women to overcome midlife crisis by rewiring the subconscious mind. Feeling overwhelmed, disillusioned, stuck? We all have. Here we explore inspiration and empowerment to navigate through the tough times and move to a place where hearts soar, minds manifest, and bodies heal. Looking at myself now, I would not recognize this person if I was to be able to see a future me 15 years ago. I went to London at 19 from Dublin in Ireland, and that was back in the mid-90s and early 90s, and it was Ireland was a very different place. It was very backwards in terms of its development in comparison to London. London was the cut and thrust. It was a major financial capital. I got an opportunity to go and work in the banking sector, grabbed it with both hands, and it brought me into a work ethic and a culture that's quite alien or certainly was alien from an Irish perspective back then, because we would have been a more laid back type country. And the UK economy is very similar to the US. You know, it's especially when you get into London and into finance, it's kill or be killed. And that's how I learned my trade. And it was a pretty tough environment. It was a very aggressive environment. You really were fighting for your position. I, I grew in my role very quickly. And by the time I was 22 or 23, I was getting paid equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars at the time, which is a lot of money for a young person. And as your salary grows and you're in that environment, your ego grows at an exponentially equivalent rate or probably higher, to be honest. So you do start to believe so much about your own publicity, but I was stacked with confidence and belief and I'd had some good successes. I got to a point working in the bank where... I was held back from a promotion 
to a board level because I was too young. So I'd made up a lot of promotions at 23 and I was told, look, you're going to have to hang around to go like 30 to get anywhere else. Now you've just made it all happen too soon. So I was an impetuous young man. So I resigned and then set up my own firm and went into business with a couple of buddies. And then we built a business ourselves, which over the next few years became quite a significant entity. We had a couple of hundred people working for us. We had offices in a couple of different countries. My entire focus really of all of my 20s was work. I don't, I look back at it and there's a, a gap in terms of spiritual or social fulfillment. It was pure work and the next deal, the next opportunity. I was never driven by money, but inevitably when you work at that kind of pace, money will will come. So I had all of those kind of things, but I didn't really have a great sense of myself. And I was really, when I look back and reflect on it, I can see how much I was determined to show everybody how successful I could be, but at the behest of understanding who I am and how I feel about it. I was almost like the bystander in this huge dash for success. I got into my 30s. I met my wife, Beatrice. And prior to meeting her, like really throughout the whole of my 20s, I had quite vacuous relationships, no serious relationship. There was one lady that, that I spent some time, we, we tried to live together and that didn't work. I was just impossible to be around because all I could think about was work. So when I met my wife, it was a bit of a game changer and she was very zen and balanced and calm and grounded. So she started to steady my ship a little bit. We had our first child, Luca, who's 14 now. And we that all went quite well. But then we wanted to try for a second child. And Beatrice then had three miscarriages on that journey, which was very painful for us as a family and very difficult for her emotionally and physically, especially after the third miscarriage. And the physicians were saying to us that, you know, it's just not really going to be, and you're better off trying to come to terms with it rather than putting her life under any more stress. So we made peace with the fact that we had one son who we were very grateful for, and we were settling into that reality when we discovered that she was in actual fact pregnant again. This time around, things went well. The 20-week scan went well. Everything was looking okay. And we decided that we'd go for a last vacation before baby number two arrived. So we, we decided to head off to Spain. So we flew out to Spain for the vacation. I'd sold my shares in my business at this stage. So I was thinking about, okay, I changed my life a bit. But to be perfectly honest, that was just a pipe dream. I knew that I'd sold that business and I was going to do something else, but I was feeling myself at the time that this could be an opportunity for change. So we went to Spain. It was a nice couple of days at the start. And then on the third day of being away, Beatrice woke me up at three o'clock in the morning to tell me that our waters had broken. I knew this wasn't good because she was only 25 weeks pregnant at this point. And we were at least 200 miles away from the nearest major hospital and we didn't speak Spanish. So what unfolded from that point was a year in Spain. 
where our lives were put on hold. Baby arrived, Joshua, under very stressful situations. Ten days later, they were hoping to hold on to him longer. He had real issues from the point of the waters being broken and then stabilizing Beatrice, where there was a point after 10 days where they couldn't find a heartbeat. There was an emergency cesarean. Joshua was born at a crazy day because nobody could tell me anything. I couldn't even find out from reception what was going on because we were in Malaga, which is not a touristy town or certainly wasn't back in 2010. And there was very little English available. So I, I lost my wife that day and, and the baby for, I'd say, maybe 10 or 12 hours until I eventually found where she was, where the ward was. And then I could find out that the baby was still alive. They gave him no hope and said, look, 48 hours maximum, he's going to die. But he kept going. And we had to live in Spain because he was so unwell. He was in neonatal intensive care for seven months. He had multiple blood transfusions. He had pneumonia. He had collapsed lungs. He had breathing difficulties, so he needed oxygen. He was dependent on oxygen. He was tube fed, but he was alive. And we were super pleased that we had a second child at that time. So that kind of brought an immediate change to everything because if you ever want to know how to be present, it comes through significant trauma and you're then trying to figure out what happens next. So, sorry, it's a long explanation there, Jane. Yeah, incredible though. So life was completely put on hold. Everything that you were before was suspended really. And then the journey inward must have started there. I'd like to say that it did, but I don't think it really did, to be honest. I think my conversations with God were happening then in terms of I was the deal maker. So I reverted to my work instincts. So one thing dealing with a crisis, I could rely on my capacity as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, that I could put plan and structure into it. So in the midst of all the chaos, we were relatively able to organize. We had to find a kindergarten for our son who was three at the time. We had to find a house. We moved house four times in 11 months in Spain. So there was a lot of chaos. Plus I had to get somebody to deal with my business interests at home. So they're all the things that you can control. The things that I couldn't control was the likelihood or success or not of, of Joshua surviving. So I used to make a deal every day with God and I was brought up as a Catholic and I wasn't practicing as a Catholic at that stage at all. But I was just making a deal to say, look, you can get us through this. I'll go to mass. I'll make sure the boys go to mass with me and we'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll be good Christians. And that was the reality. It was highly transactional. I was only focused on getting us out of Spain and hopefully having the Joshua with us. But I didn't have a sense of spirit or connection to myself at that stage. I don't think so. I, I had a priority and a focus on Joshua's well-being and trying to be the best that we could be to Luca in the midst of that storm. But things were not to be. And after seven and a half months or so, we were given an opportunity to train as his carers because he was still not well enough to be flown back by air ambulance. But if we could learn how to train to be his carers and he could survive sufficiently well outside the hospital, then we could air ambulance him out of Spain. So we, we got a moved house again to another house, like literally on the doorstep of the hospital. So we could start this work. 
And in Spain, there's an offering where the physicians will come to your home every two days. So we had oxygen machines, we had heart rate monitors, we had tube feeding devices, we had suction pumps because Joshua needed his airways cleaned out several times a day. And that became our life for a few months. So one of us was always on because when you have an ill child, they don't sleep normally. So it's a 24-hour job. We thought we would get to the point of being able to bring him back with us. But sadly, it didn't work out. We had multiple times where we had him back in hospital during that period. And each time we'd go back, he would be intubated again, put on life support. So whatever kind of physio that we're doing, whatever kind of developmental work that we're doing, everything that you've achieved is just decimated as soon as they're back on life support because the amount of medication that has to go in just has huge impacts on developmental processes of such a young and fragile brain. So we kept going backwards, but on the Christmas day of that year, so we're into our 11th month, 10th month in Spain, we were back in hospital again. And um, this time, the our normal medical team weren't there, a different bunch of physicians were there. And they said to us that they've resuscitated him again, they've put him back on life support. And they said, look, we know your story. We know how much you guys are fighting and how much you've given up to try and bring him home, but it can't go on. So they told us that the next time Joshua has an incident, they won't be able to intubate and that they would be insisting on the fact that we let nature take its course and he needs to die. And that's like hitting a, an unbelievable brick wall um, mm -hmm. because you always believe that in the end, the story will go in your favor. We fought a last battle to get him out of hospital and back home with us because we wanted him to at least die with us in an unmedicated environment because he'd had so much of that for his whole life. So we had another three and a half weeks of him being with us at home in our house in Spain. And Luca, his brother, who was now four and becoming more aware of his young brother, got to have time with him and we got some beautiful photographs and my parents came and Beatrice's mom came. We had a wonderful experience of transitioning from his life into his death. And that was profoundly spiritual and a real blessing for us. Funny, but in many ways, we can find so much peace within that period because we got to have a period of time that we were actually in control of. It wasn't medicated and it was beautiful and it was filled with love and connection and a, a sad end to a very hard year, but a happy end as well, where we knew that he died comfortably, peacefully. And in Beatrice's arms, he drew his last breath. So that was beautiful for us. Oh, wow. And yeah, just seeing a spirit go from now to across the veil and being there in completion is really an incredible gift, but not an easy one. Not an easy one. But in some ways, at the end, his life was quite intolerable as well. And he was in a lot of physical pain. So there was a sense of freedom for his soul and for his spirit. Um, and we recognize that. And it's hard. It's like a defining moment for the rest of your life. And it defines so much about us as a family. But in many ways, 
it brought us closer. We were bonded through grief. And that's not a normal thing. Like it's, I think it's 75% of marriages where there's a terminal child break up. So it's not an easy thing to be through. And it's like a ripple effect throughout your life for many years to come. We're 16 years married now. Um, and I'm, I, I love my wife as much now as I probably more than I did when we met. We've made it through that huge challenge. And I think we can make it through anything after that. And that's why I like talking about it because to help everybody else realize that if somebody can see our story and see how we made it through, then it gives them hope for whatever their own challenges are, that there is this incredible spirit within us to survive and thrive. I believe in post-traumatic growth. I think that's available. Yeah. And looking back, you can see the gift in it now because it must have been life-changing and it was incredibly powerful. Yeah, totally. It was life-changing. I'd like to say that after Joshua died, my life changed, but I actually reverted to type relatively quickly after his death because I felt that I needed to redefine myself to my peers and to my family. And I'd had this kind of hiatus for a year of not being in business. So I went in and set up a new company. Like, and I'm talking six weeks after we cremated Joshua, I was building a new business. I was pitching to shareholders and bringing directors onto my board. And over the next two and a half years, I was full on work mode again. And now I can recognize I'm a workaholic, but back then I didn't. I was flying. 180, 200 times a year, not grieving, not slowing down, not paying attention to my emotions, not connecting into the loss, but actually running away from it. And at the same time, my wife was grieving. Yeah, we got a, We decided to move to Ireland at that stage just to be a bit more around family. And we got a golden retriever puppy and Beatrice spent many months walking in the mountains with the dog. And just being with herself and getting comfortable with this reality. And I did the exact opposite. And the only time I ever had to reflect on Joshua's death was I take off and landing on a plane when they tell you to put away your phone and take off your headphones. And you're on the airplane, you've got nowhere to look, you've got nowhere to go. And then I would have flashbacks of his death, which was the precursor to PTSD, which consumed me three years after his death. And I had a panic attack. But that was all just simply down to not grieving, being part of the process. Letting, letting us grieve is the first pathway to helping us heal. And if we try and avoid it, it won't go away. No. And thank you for sharing that because some people know how to grieve, but very few really. It's our nature to run from it and run from the pain, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Totally. So did Beatrice help you when you? finally had your, was it the nervous breakdown that caused you to pour things out or? It was, it all happened incredibly fast, which is always weird when I reflect on it. I felt perfectly okay for kind of two years after Joshua's death. And I thought I was coping with it quite well. And I would have even been advocating to people at the time. This is how you deal with grief. I'm feeling great. You got to just push on in life. And 
it was around about between January and May, this all happened to me. But I started to, in January, I started to get these flashbacks when I was on the airplane. I was ignoring them, not really paying attention. But my physical health had been deteriorating quite badly in the months preceding. Um, so I developed irritable bowel syndrome, sinusitis. I had leaky gut. I had chronic fatigue. I had chronic headaches. I had migraines. I had shingles, like several bouts of shingles. As I've gone on to study neuroscience now, I can understand that my body was effectively falling apart because I wasn't paying attention to the mental anguish that was there. But back then, I just kept thinking, oh, I don't really know what this is. I'll go and get another steroid, another thing. And I was taking all kinds of things to try and just keep this machine on the road and me in the air flying all the time. And I was in Sydney, I was in New York, I was in multiple time zones, but literally I was dying from the inside out. I came back from a business trip and we'd had a couple of conversations and Beatrice obviously was witnessing to, to me dismantling, but I came back from a business trip and I came into the kitchen and she was preparing dinner and she said to me, and at this stage, we now had two golden retrievers. And she said to me, when you come home now, you've stopped petting the dogs. And it was that simple statement that made me think, wow, okay, I love my dogs. So what's going on there? And I was really harvesting the resources that I need to get to where I need to get to, to run my business. And I was shutting down everything else, which was the people and the things in my life that I love. And I think it was pr probably preceding that I had, a, I had a one panic attack in a meeting. And it was a really important meeting. There was about 12 people in my boardroom. I had a panic attack and I thought I'm having a heart attack. And then I thought maybe I'm having a stroke, but I kept going through the meeting. I thought it's not a really bad heart attack because I haven't fallen over, but my peripheral vision ceased. So I could only see people through the lens of looking straight at them. So I spent this like next 30, 40 minutes in the meeting turning my head whenever anybody spoke because I couldn't see them on either side from my periphery. Yeah. My heart felt like it was going to pop out of my mouth and I was in a bit of a cold sweat and feeling very out of it. But my work ethic was finish the meeting, close the deal. So these things all happened. And then I had that moment where she said, you stop petting the dogs. And that was the catalyst. And I said to her, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm really very well at the moment. And that would have been a big step for me to admit that because I probably wasn't even willing to admit it to myself up until that moment. Certainly like after that panic attack, I, I, I shot off to my hotel and just had a glass of whiskey at the bar and thought, I don't know what that was, but I'm fine. Um, mm -hmm. So I was able to talk to her and say, I don't really feel well. I knew I'd been drinking too much as well. So I was definitely self-medicating with alcohol. I was overweight. I wasn't fit. I wasn't exercising. Like all of my autonomic nervous system was going wrong. I had autoimmune disease. Like it was, I was literally a withering plant in the corner of the room that hadn't seen light. Unless we do something quickly, it's going to die. And she was definitely a catalyst for that. And she knows me well enough that she had to wait for the right moment, for the right time to have that intervention. And it worked. Right. You have to ask, don't you? Yeah. It's like, there's this moment where, yes, I need help. I can't tell you how many patients I've had that 
they're quite sick and I'll take their case. And at the beginning, I'll ask if there's anything that happened that was emotionally difficult or that could have started all of this. And they'll often say, no, nothing, that they're perfectly fine. And then two hours later, you're like, really? You didn't think to mention this deep grief that you experienced five years ago? (laughs) That all comes out. But it's like, it's our story as humans. So It is. I think it's that loss. I think I've learned like when I then went on to train as a therapist and then studied neuroscience and and doing a master's in in neuroscience and then a master's in in mindfulness-based interventions, all of these things come together. But what I really see all the time when I'm working with clients and I'm working with teams, whether it's people working in a group environment or individuals, the story that's impacted somebody emotionally is always to do with loss. And that can be loss of a loved one. But also, I, I had um, a really nice walk with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and she's in her 50s, and she said to me, oh, look, I just wanted to come and talk to you because I don't really feel great. And I thought, maybe if I talk to you, I'll get a sense of, is there something that I'm missing? And like that, I said to her, so tell me, like, what's happened to you? Give me the headlines of how life has been for you over the course of your life. So she painted a picture of, of her kids and everything else. And then I said, okay. And I said, nothing has gone wrong. No major loss, no, no problems, no trauma. And she said, no, nothing, nothing at all. And I was like, and I was quite puzzled because I could see, as you, Jane, you can see in somebody's face when they're traumatized and when they're struggling. And I said, okay. I said, what about your physical health? I said, how's that been? Um, oh, I've had breast cancer. And then that spread to my ovaries. Then I've had another issue with cancer spreading throughout my body. And then I had to have a vasectomy. And then I went into menopause. And then I had huge challenges within my menopause. And I felt like I was losing sense of myself. And as she started talking about it, then she started crying. And then she was able to say, oh, okay, this is happening to me. You're losing so much of yourself through your medical issues. This is a loss. And especially as you move through uh, into menopause, you're losing so much of your former self and you have to reorientate and and understand how life is going to be. And that can be a challenge. And we're too easy to say, just come on, move on, get on with it. Don't, Don't dwell. But all of the pain comes from a sense of loss. What part of us do we lose? Maybe that is physically, but also the emotional trauma of going through these things. Yeah. And even the shock of being diagnosed with a serious disease has an effect on our... Totally. Yeah. Totally. And don't we don't allow ourselves to understand that these things have huge burdens for us to bear and whether you're in therapy or you just have a good friend, a problem shared is a problem halved. Just being able to communicate it will already make you feel a bit better. And I, my understanding from German New Medicine is that these shocks, these emotional shocks actually affect our brain. And then that in turn affects the physical body. So 
When did you start to study neuroscience for you to share the basics of neuroscience so people understand sure. the effect that the mind has on the body? What I said about my, my, my previous career, my background, I was very analytical, very process-driven, and very technical in the way that I would do things. So I had a very good understanding of the global financial markets and how they work and understanding the complexities of things and then being able to discern that down into a simpler thing that can be distilled to a broader audience is a very successful way to build a business. So when I went into therapy, my therapist, Dr. Pradeep Chadha, who is a psychiatrist, trained psychiatrist, but 20 years ago, he became disillusioned by the process that he was involved in, where as he was medicating people more and more, they were just getting more and more ill. He wasn't getting the outcomes that he wanted. So he developed a process which was really based around the principles that he'd come to understand growing up in India, and a lot of it connected into his own spiritual path. And within that, it was almost like a focus in many ways, looking at the likes of Kundalini Yoga and the Kundalini Serpent, which is throughout the body. And when you look at the Kundalini Serpent, it's connecting to all of the main parts of the body through the chakras and then connecting to the organs, et cetera. So when, he, when I started in therapy with him, he was explaining some of these things to me and we were doing these exercises that seemed incredibly weird, but I was unwell and I'm like, great, that makes me feel better. I'm happy to do it. But after I'd finished my own therapy with him, which lasted about six months, I said to him, I really want you to teach me everything that we've just been through because I find it incredible. And I said to him, so much so that I want to learn this and I want to get out of financial markets. I want to sell my shares. I want to tell my board I'm resigning. So Pradeep was pretty shocked, I think, by this declaration. But what ensued was I trained with him. And what I found very interesting was the holistic approach to helping somebody get well. And key to that was understanding how we connect into our nervous system. And his work would have been very much focused on moving us from the sympathetic state, so the fight and flight state, into the parasympathetic state. And as we're moving into the parasympathetic state, we then use therapy to allow you to look at the traumas. Just you, you as a client visualize the traumas yourself. It's almost, as I explained to people, it's like I hold a light so that people can see their lives as it is, and they will find the answers that they need all by themselves. You're, we're just a vehicle in therapy. But his work was very much grounded within the neuroscience. And I'd speak to Pradeep about neuroscience, and he'd go, yeah, it is neuroscience, but that's not important. What's important is the outcome. But when I finished training with him, I felt I think neuroscience is important because I know that if I work in this field and I get to work with some senior professional people who will want to come for help, they might want to look under the bonnet, or sorry, let me get my Americanisms right, under the hood <laughs> a lot more and than just the spiritual side. So I thought, how will I make this appeal to somebody just like me? So that brought me into the whole realm of neuroscience. And when I started to look at neuroscience, I wanted to understand my story. So I could see all of these autoimmune issues. And of course, I knew all my own timelines when you knew when I was diagnosed with each one of the issues. And I think the best one of all of the medical conditions 
which thankfully I don't have to suffer from anything anymore. But leaky gut was the best one of the whole lot because I ended up going to have a camera inserted and, and working with a gastroenterologist who was a professor of gastroenterology in, in one of the top hospitals in Dublin. And when I was there and I was going in, I'd already been working with Pradeep. I was, I'd learned how to meditate. I was coming to terms with my grief. So instead of just being spoon-fed more medication, I went in and I said to him, you're going to put the camera in. Can I stay awake when you do it? And he was like, well, I don't really recommend it. really prefer that you're not awake. And I said, well, I just want to see what the damage is inside and then here are the solutions. So I got to stay awake. He put the camera in, which was a really bizarre experience. I don't recommend it if you don't have to do it. But when he put the camera in, he looked at the lining in my stomach. And what I've learned in subsequent years in, in, in neuroscience and how our digestive system works, we have a process called um, peristalsis, which is how food moves through the body. And it's literally the expansion and contraction of muscle groups that allow the food to move all the way through the, the various intestines and then out through the bowel. So he said to me, okay, I can show you now. And he turned the screen around, so we're both looking at it. And he said, there, you see there's a hole there. And it was like watching a balloon in water. You could just see loads of fluid pouring out of this hole. And he said, so right now, he said, the lining of your stomach is, um, is damaged. And basically, everything that you don't want in terms of toxins is now just leaking into your bloodstream and everywhere else. So I said to him, oh, wow, I said, what can we do about this? And he said, not really very much. He said, you're going to just have to take medication for the rest of your life. And I was like, really? I said, so it's not reversible. No, nothing we do. He said, but I'm going to give you really good medication. And he said, if you're taking once a day, and he said, if it comes to Friday or Saturday night and you're going to have a nice bottle of red wine, he said, you might want to take two pills just to counteract yeah, the alcohol. And he said, you'll manage it and you'll be okay. You'll be in discomfort for most of your life, but you'll be okay. So I left there and that was definitely the moment when I went, right, I'm just going to research everything that I can to figure out how do I deal with these autoimmune issues in my body. Um, so I quit alcohol. I went plant-based. I learned all about nutrition. And then I started to understand neuroscience. I started studying neuroscience at that stage. And that's when I started to find the vagus nerve. And that was like an eye-opening moment because I'd started to learn the foundations of neuroscience. Then I studied and found the vagus nerve. And then I could actually plot my journey through ill health back to the vagus nerve and how I'd started to kill it in many ways. And it was slowly but surely falling away. Um, and there's a great physician, Dr. Hauser, who on people with neck trauma. And his focus was looking at people with neck trauma like physical injuries, so people who'd broken their neck. And he did a study where he looked at people who'd broken their neck and he kept noticing that they had higher rates of um, mental health issues than he was seeing from other colleagues who would have clients or patients with significant injury that would be life-changing in other parts of the body. So he didn't really understand why the neck was causing more problem than everywhere else, but he thought there must be something in it that we're not seeing here. So he then started to look at 
fMRI scans. So rather than just an MRI, when you do an fMRI, you take slices of each part of the nerve and you're able to see what's going on. So he carried out a study where he had patients with trauma, neck injuries, so typically they've broken their neck. He then decided to get a cohort of people who had depression and to do fMRI scans of their neck because all of his patients seemed to end up with depression as well. And then a cohort of, of ordinary people to make a comparison who were healthy. And what he started to notice was that people who broke in their neck and people who were depressed had the same nerve damage to their vagus nerve. It was almost identical, but there was no actual physical trauma for the people who had depression. It's extended his work now over the last 20 years to be more focused on the well-being of the patient rather than just the structural issue. But what that really shone a light on was this nerve, which is cranial nerve 10, and vagus is nothing to do with Las Vegas, unfortunately. It is the Latin for wandering because it's the wandering nerve. It touches all points of your body. So this nerve connects to all parts of your body and ultimately, it determines whether you're in a rest and relax state or you're in fight and flight. And we should be in rest and relax or rest and recovery 95% of the time and 5% of the time we're in fight and flight. But in modern world, we're now trapped in the fight and flight all the time because we're stuck with social media and work stress and COVID and all these kind of things going on that keeps us in a hypervigilant state. But his work changed everything for me. And it made me realize that the approach from a yogic perspective figured this out 3,000 years ago. And Kundalini yoga and breath work were, were really doing quite wonderful things. So then I thought, okay, breath work, Kundalini, how does breath work look when you start looking at the vagus nerve? And everything just joins up. But is breath work miraculously? and documented clinically now in the last 10 years is that meditation is one of the most transformative things you can do for your vagus nerve. So does it help it repair even? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because actually we can't repair when we're in fight or flight is what I'm understanding from all of my time learning and from others and everything. It's like you have to be in parasympathetic to even start to heal. Absolutely. Because when we're in sympathetic state, what happens is our body's resources shift. So the body is basically preparing for an impending threat. And that's the, this is a 200,000 year old vessel that we're all running around in. So it immediately thinks there's somebody going to kill me right now. And I need to be prepared to either fight or run. And when you move into that state, your body then assesses it and says, I don't really need to continue to digest my food properly. My liver functions don't need to be on full. My kidneys don't need to be on full. Most importantly, my immune system can go on standby. When we're stressed, our immunity drops. And that's a really important thing to realize when we're looking at that, that the likes of pandemics that we're facing. So all of those things drop off. And then what turns on is my adrenaline and my cortisone levels rise. So they're pumped into my system. So my adrenals kick in, they pump in the steroids. So my heart rate rises, my blood vessels are expanded, and now I'm ready to take that immediate shift and move. But 
we don't do that. So we're chronic state of, of almost on all the time. So it's like low grade anxiety. It's not fully fired up, but it's just there all the time. So it only takes the slightest thing and people are like triggered straight away because they're never moving into the rest and recovery into parasympathetic. And it's only in parasympathetic where your immune system is fully operative, where your kidneys and liver are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, where your stomach and your bowels are operating correctly. Because your body has to be able to process and move poisons through the system. It has to be able to cleanse itself. And we're not able to do that when we're in a stress state. So people get chronically ill. And what do we get when we go to physicians for autoimmune disease when we're chronically ill? Steroids. Now, those bodies are still firing huge amounts of steroids into them all the time. And then we put more steroids on top. So the inflammation just gets worse. And the vagus nerve, the, like, the principal issue in terms of what's wrong with your vagus nerve is it's inflamed. Um, and most autoimmune diseases are not hereditary. They're lifestyle orientated. And again, they're brought on by, by an inflammation in the body. It's not to say that I'm saying medication's wrong. Not at all. It has a time and place. But it's important that if you have an autoimmune disease, <clears throat> even if it's psoriasis, you know, what else is going on when your psoriasis flares up? Are you stressed? Has something happened to you in the past? Have you got unresolved grief? Were you bullied when you were 10 years of age in school? And that was hugely traumatic. And if somebody asks you to name the five most difficult things that you faced in your life, write them down. And if one of them is I was bullied when I was 10 years old, that needs work. So your vagus nerve is like this beautiful plant that's put in you. And you've got to give it enough light. So you've got to be able to connect to it. You're going to give it enough water and you have to nourish it. And in turn, it will nourish you back. But if you don't do that, you will end up like I did with all those things chronically wrong with me. And at the point where I was feeling suicidal and completely at a loss with my life, but only because my nervous system was failing. That was all. Like it was a systems failure that needed to be reset. Yeah. And so much of our stress is in the unconscious. So we're, we can block it off, pretend it's not there, but it has such a major impact on it and our physical health. Totally. Yeah. So you, did this lead you to more meditation and experimenting with a deeper state of zenness? What happened next? Absolutely. So it, it's like that moment when you suddenly think, oh, okay, this is a vehicle that I have some sovereignty over. So I can actually kind of healing myself. So it brought me into more of an understanding of what can I do? So a lot of my process then was how can I heal myself and what can I improve? So I experimented with lots of things. Um, so intermittent fasting, going plant-based, just eating organic fruits and vegetables, water, which is so important, like hydration. These are simple things that people need to know. There's great experiments to show and studies around if you can take two liters of water, which is supposed to three pints of water a day in, 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 in old money, if you can drink that throughout the day, so in a normal day, you're not excessively exercising because then you need to adapt it. But have two liters of water a day, but don't drink it in large gulps. 
think of yourself as a plant, slow feeding, because if you drink a large amount of water, you end up just weighing it out almost instantaneously. Whereas if you drink it in small sips, then you feed into the body. But your body also knows when you drink in small sips, it goes, oh, everything must be okay at the moment. We're not under any great pressure to drink here. We're drinking slowly. It allows the water to filter through to your organs, to your bowels. It helps your bowel movement. It helps your kidney function, helps your liver function, helps your stomach. I started to find all these things and then sleep. Sleep was like, wow, that's just unbelievable how important our sleep is. And again, if you go back to, as you said, Jane, in the sympathetic state, in the fight and flight, we can't recover in terms of our own well-being. But what's important is that as we sleep, so much of our neurological development, the neuroplasticity that we now understand in the last 20 years, which shows that we can change our mindset from whatever trauma has happened in the past, we can come to terms with it and we can adapt. But it requires neuroplasticity. That happens during a good night's sleep. All of these studies were interesting, but I was also very interested in the spiritual side. I was studying Buddhist psychology at the time, and I found that really interesting because there was so much knowledge within that teachings that the Buddha had laid down 2,000 years ago that are now being incorporated into modern neuroscience and psychology were astounding. But then I came across a practice called Shigendo, which resonated even more with me because Shigendo is from Japan. It's 1500 years old, and it's a combination of Buddhism and Shintoism. So in Japan, most people are, were brought up within Shintoism, and Shinto is more about a connection of us to nature. So it's more of a spirituality than a religion. Shigendo was a mix of Buddhist teachings with this connection to nature. So I found this, and I have no idea how I did. When you go on a spiritual path, things just land in front of you, as I'm sure. And I went to Japan to train with Yamabushi priests who hold sacred the mysticism of Shigendo. So it's a very mystical, spiritual approach. And I went on a five-day master training with them in the most arduous of conditions that you could possibly imagine. They push you, they take your phone, they take your watch, they disorientate you, they're waking you up at all times. It's And it, they're part of the samurai lineage. So this is like Marine Corps training within spiritualism. And you're not fed, you're just given minimal amounts of water, you're up and down the third highest mountain in Japan, hiking for hours and hours. You're not allowed to look at each other. You're not allowed to speak to each other. You're made sleep on the most basic of floor. You get a little blanket. There's no pillows. There's no luxury at all. And this whole process is teaching you nobody is coming to save you. You have to mind yourself. You have to take care of yourself. And when you go to Japan and they get you to sign like a disclaimer, you go to the US, you go to the UK, and you sign a disclaimer for everything, right? Because everybody's afraid of being sued. In Japan, when they tell you to sign a disclaimer because you may die, it means you may die. So they literally put us in the most extreme situations. And you have to go through a lot of assessments with the monks first, and you have to already have a very strong and capable approach to your own well-being and meditation, and you have to be fit and healthy. You're, you're signing up for something quite difficult. 
that was all of my um, academic studies were going on. That was the study and the practical reality of paying attention. The whole focus was pay attention to your life. Nobody else cares. You must focus on your own life. But I remember the day five coming to the end and it had been horrendous. It was like the worst experience and the best experience all in one. But we're coming down a mountain. We, we'd come through the tail end of a typhoon. And in these mountains in Japan, in Shanghai, they say the only people who ever go up a mountain in a typhoon is Yamabushi. Everybody else is coming down. So we've been up the mountain. We're coming back down. The pathway down is now a torrent of a river because the water was just pouring down from the mountains. And we're running as a group down. We're all dressed in traditional Yamabushi clothing, which is 1,500 years old. And we just have a little stick to navigate the ground. So you're like prodding the ground to make sure that it's safe and you're literally running through a river. And we come to the end and Master Hoshino, who was leading us, is this 76-year-old incredibly fit Japanese monk. And we're about an hour out and now we're going to have lunch at the end. I haven't spoken in five days and we've had some unbelievably incredible experiences like where we got attacked and killed by by a bear and some weird stuff and you haven't been able to speak to anybody or share what's gone on so i, I lost concentration and thought oh, i can't wait to talk about this i've made it through and we're going to have a nice lunch and as soon as i went into that mode i put my foot into a hole which was like three foot deep and i face planted into a rock and bust my leg and cracked open the side of my head and the water was now pouring down the mountain. And I was upside down looking at the water. So it was I was being waterboarded by a mountain. So I was trying to I was trying to get my face out of the water. And I was drowning. Well, my leg was stuck down this hole. And all I could see was seven or eight Yamabushi run past me. Nobody was allowed to touch me. Nobody was allowed to look at me. So they all went pum 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 pum. And then everybody disappeared down the mountain. I had to try and drag myself out and wrap parts of my clothing around. My ankle was bust. There was a lot of blood and drag my ass down the mountain. But at the end, the lesson was, you know, if you don't pay attention, it's your fault. So no one helped you. No. <laughs> I believe that there is no savior. We are the ones that yeah. we have to look deep and inward to find the answers. And that's what they were teaching you. And sometimes you need that kind of training to really get it. Yeah. Nobody's coming to save you. Unless you can drag yourself off the mountain, nobody's coming to save you. And it was a truly profound lesson. And I thought I was enlightened. Like I thought I was enlightened so then I fell down the hole. And, and we're never enlightened. There's always the next thing. All we can do is prepare for the next thing. I can't change or influence what's going to happen to me. I can only change and influence how I react. That's the cornerstone of, of a spiritual practice. As I, I'm studying a master's in mindfulness at um, King's College in London at the moment. And yeah, it's very interesting and exciting. But I know that the lessons that I've learned from these Siddic monks and from my own teacher, Pradeep, whose lineage goes back thousands of years to India, that they knew all this long before we ever decided to think that we're the experts in the West. 
now we're able to put labels on it and put clinical studies behind it, but they've known it for thousands of years. Sometimes I wonder if there's an agenda to cover it, not cover it up, but help us forget how powerful we are and these ancient teachings. Because not money in it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if everyone's healthy. <laughs> yeah, because that's not good for the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> so, but what they taught you, what was just repeat the basic teaching that you came out with from this experience. I just find it so incredible. Pay, pay attention, attention to your mind. If we can learn to pay attention and slow down and notice where is my foot? What's happening in front of me right now? When we get lost in our mind, we're not able to notice where our feet are. If we're not noticing where our feet are, we're not present in this moment. So if you're living your life worrying about the future, which is anxiety or regretting the past, which is in a depression, you're not present. And it's not a case of then going, oh, that's what it is. Okay, click my sw- click the switch. I just focus on being present. You have to do the work in order to resolve the issues. If somebody has anxiety about something that might happen in the future, and I was very unfortunate that before my son died, eight years before my son died, my nephew died. He was 18 months old. He died. I happened to be home from London that weekend. It was a horrendous thing to impact my family and my sister and her husband. And it traumatized me for many years to come. So it was my biggest fear when my first child was born that he'd die. And then my second child died. So we then end up with anxiety. So I would then have ongoing anxiety that maybe my wife will die next or my other son would die. So when we have anxiety in the future, it's always predicated from something in the past. We're not born into this world anxious. We're born into this world fearless. So our anxieties come from something. So when we're worrying about the future, it's generally predicated because something has happened in the past. And our nervous system can only read two things. It reads everything as, is this okay or is it a threat to my life? That's it. It's binary. So whenever something bad happens in your life, it goes, it's a threat to your life. And then it files it away as a sympathetic response. And anything that looks, feels, or smells like that, when your memory meets it, it goes, it's a threat to my life. And it puts it in the same camp and it makes you feel anxious about it. And what's interesting when you look at our nervous system, our eyes, our ears, our nose, and our skin senses are not connected to brain. They, first of all, go through our nervous system. So our autonomic nervous system is the point of entry. And that's like a gate where it says, is this okay or is this a threat to my life? If it says it's okay, the gate opens and then it allows your cognitive brain, your prefrontal cortex to discern what it is. But it first goes through that. So any previous experiences that look bad, it goes, oh, we had something that looked similar to this. So it's better off the bad experience. So we feel anxious about lots of things in our future. So when we come to terms with our future and we come to terms with our past, the only place that's left for us to be is present. And that's ultimately what all our Yamabushi training was about. Pay attention to yourself. Focus on where your feet are and how you're moving forward and realize that nobody's coming to save you. Nobody really cares about you in terms of your life. You have a partner, you have family. Yes, they do love you, but... Your relationship is interdependent. It's not dependent. If it's dependent, 
it's not going to be good for you. It's interdependence. So you're going to give something to them. They're going to give something to you. They're not focused on you all the time. And if you believe that they are, you have a life of hurt and misery in front of you. Yeah. And expecting them to change it. Yeah. I was trying to teach this to my daughter yesterday who was having a lot of stress around a situation. And you worry that A, that they'll drive in that stress because their frontal cortex isn't working. And it's really dangerous because you're you're not in the moment. And I was trying to tell her that the future doesn't exist. The past doesn't exist, only the moment. And the way you perceive it will have an impact on what happens. Do you feel that sometimes your biggest fear can be what actually happens in your life? Like you bring it closer to you. What's your thoughts on that? Listen, it's for me, it's something that I have to live with because after my nephew Nabil died, when my first son Luke was born, I had all the technology, heart monitors, you know, it's caught checking if his heart stopped at night, there was an alarm gone off, there's a camera in there. I had everything. I do believe I'm very scientific and practical in many ways, but also I've seen so much in my life that I've learned to be respectful of where thoughts go, where we focus our energy, we tend to move towards. I'm not saying that Joshua died because my focus was on the fact that one of my children might die. But it's certainly not a good place to be putting your attention or your energy. And I think we have to be very careful about our words. We have to be very careful about our thoughts. And we have to be very very mindful of what we bring into the world. I think you can manifest good things and you can manifest bad things. Um, So being mindful of that's important. And helping people understand, as you were with your daughter, to get a sense of how the mind works. And even I like within Buddhist psychology, they use the idea of um, two darts. So when we have a, a, an issue with somebody, like a great one is I'm dealing with a teenager at the moment and teenagers are quite interesting to, to watch because genetically they're wired once they get to 13 to create separation. So they know at that point when they hit puberty that they're going to outlive their parents. So that's a genetic predisposition and that's how the human race continues to survive. And the way that they have to outlive their parents is to separate. So you have to move from being this kind of like infallible person to then being this idiot that's just in the way of what they want out of life. And don't get too upset about it because they're genetically predisposed to do that. We all did it too. And it's how you then find your own tribe. So they have to get out into the world and find their own tribe. So they will kick back and find, want to find space. But within one of the teachings of, of Buddhist psychology is the two darts. And it's best seen whilst dealing with a teenager. And a couple of days ago, I went into our kitchen and it was morning time. My son, who's off school at the moment because it's summer, sitting at the breakfast bar. I opened the refrigerator, not really knowing what I was going to take out. So I opened the refrigerator and looked into it, thinking, mm, what am I going to eat? And then stood there for like 60 seconds, to which point the 14-year-old kicks off about how I'm now bringing the entire planet into disrepute and global warming is basically my fault at this moment. <laughs> 
<laughs> so <clears throat> what we look at in Buddhist psychology is the first dart. So he's throwing the first dart at me. And if I can see it, so he's now triggering me. And you see that first dart, and it's like the dart hits you. And if you can notice that somebody's thrown the dart and actually take it out, look at it, and drop it, that's option one. Option two is it's my goddamn fridge in my goddamn house. And if I want to look at it for 60 seconds, that's my decision. And that's me throwing the second dart back at him. So all that's going to happen at that point is conflict between the two of us. So I see the first dart. I look at him. I can feel like a response that wants to come out. I think I'm not going to go there. So I close the fridge. I walk out of the house, walk out of the kitchen. I walk out of the house and I just walk around our block. I come back in 10 minutes later and he's eating his breakfast. And I walk back in. He's like, oh, hey, dad. You're saying that Messi has left Barcelona and he's going to another football club and this is all happening and blah, 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 because he's gone. He's forgotten it. And like teenagers don't have a properly formed prefrontal cortex. So they don't have an emotional awareness of how they can impact us really badly and that we're left holding the baby and they're like, they've already moved on. Yeah. So if you step away from it and come back, you're okay. So it's, I think when you understand a little bit of the neuroscience, which is exciting. And again, we all think we've figured this out now because teenagers don't have properly developed prefrontal cortexes. If you look at Buddhist teachings, they gave you the tools 2000 years ago to deal with it. But creating space, awareness, and avoiding that impetuous desire to strike out at somebody who has said something off to you will bring you an unbelievable sense of happiness and freedom afterwards when you realize I'm not in conflict right now. I have twins and oh, wow. they start throwing darts and they're both teenagers. Can you imagine? <laughs> I usually leave the room like there's no home. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine that now when it's two teenagers both attacking you. That's, that's pretty hard. And like I'm saying this now and I'm saying this how I behaved with him the other day at the refrigerator. That's not to say that I don't get triggered. Like I'm we pretty good at avoiding it, but it's we're still all human. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's a superpower. I teach it in corporates for negotiation. So I, I still do work with corporate companies and negotiation is a big part around meditation and reflection. And I teach them, just don't say anything because the other person will fill up the void with information that will benefit you. Yeah. So we find it uncomfortable when somebody doesn't talk. We don't know what to do. So we have to speak. No, Justin, this is an incredible conversation. I am just so grateful. It's Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Yeah. So much gratitude. Do you have anything left to add that we've missed that would be really important for people to know? God, yeah, so much, I suppose. Well, I think m most importantly, for anybody who's listening, who's struggling, it's important to know that you can take care of yourself. You can find ways and means to improve your own health. I publish a lot of what I can on YouTube around simple exercises that work to help us connect to the vagus nerve, to help us to slow down and to move into the parasympathetic state. Because a lot of people, they can't even remember what it's like to be parasympathetic. So there's some nice exercises there that can help you with that. I think for people who, who can't afford to work with therapists, which is such a problem in terms of of people's capacity to spend this type of money. I think looking at meditation, 
looking at yoga, I think yoga is probably one of the best things you can do because you're moving the body and repairing your vagus nerve. Work on your neck and your spine is hugely healing. My post is another video on my YouTube channel, which is like the morning stretching exercises I use every day, which are just like seven or eight minutes just to give some flexibility to your spine and you'll feel a lift just by doing them. For those who can't afford or don't have the insurances to cover what they need, there's a huge amount of wisdom available through people like you, Jane, and, and stuff that we share, whether it's on podcasts. And I hope what we put out gives people who are not able to have access to a lot of resources, hope, and, and a capacity to heal. And how do people find you? Where's your website? I'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, my website is just, it's justincaffrey.com. That's C-A-F-F-R-E-Y.com. And if you go onto YouTube and just type in my name, you'll find all the stuff there as well. So there's a whole ton of completely free resources. So please make use of it. If you've enjoyed the information in this episode, share it with someone you care about and know will benefit. There is one thing for certain. Meltdowns are inevitable. Let's move into mastery together. In the show notes, you'll find my link tree, which has links to many of the most popular platforms. You'll also find links to connect to the featured guest, web page, and social media. Thanks again for being committed to mastery. Change in this world really starts within each of us.